You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. I was honored to be the keynote speaker at five different conferences this month all over the country, from San Francisco to LA to Denver to Philadelphia and New York last night. I just got back to California this morning. And what I noticed about all of these events is that I'm seeing a lot more millennials attending. And when I talk to them, I am just blown away at how quickly they're able to build their businesses. It just seems like they've got the energy and the tech savvy to create companies overnight. And I'm also noticing that maybe what they don't have is life experience. And sometimes nobody on their team who has it either. I'm Kathy Fetke and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. So what do you think could happen to you if you could merge wisdom with fresh ideas? Well, our guest today has found a way to do that. He's the founder of Joie de Vivre Hospitality, which he began in 1987 at the young age of 26. In 2010, after having created and managed 50 boutique hotels, mostly in California, he sold that company. And a few years later, he was asked by the three co-founders of Airbnb if he could help them evolve into a hospitality company with more than 1 million hosts in 191 countries. Chip Conley accepted the challenge and became the head of global hospitality and strategy for Airbnb, working closely with CEO Brian Chesky as a mentor. And he's here with us today on The Real Wealth Show. Welcome, Chip. It's great to have you here. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much, Kathy. I really appreciate it. I got to hear you on stage at Singularity University, and I was blown away by your message. It's a very similar message we have at Real Wealth Network, which is really bringing in the wisdom with the new, young, brilliant minds of the millennials and bringing that together. So if you would tell me a little bit about the beginnings of you and Airbnb. Thanks for asking. For many years, for about 24 years, I was the founder and CEO of Joie de Vivre Hospitality, which grew into the second largest boutique hotelier in the U.S., based in San Francisco. The vast majority of our hotels were in California and, frankly, Northern California. So I sold that company in 2010 and wasn't sure what was next for me. And then I got tapped on the shoulder by the three founders of Airbnb, who were all three young millennials who had stumbled upon the idea of urban home sharing based upon their own personal experience. And the company had became a tech company focused on building a platform. And they grew. And then all of a sudden, they realized none of them had any background in entrepreneurship, leadership, uh, hospitality, travel, et cetera. And so they reached out to me in early 2013. The company was already of a moderate size, but it was still only about maybe 120th of the size it is today. And I joined them. And I joined them as Brian Chesky, the founder, co-founder and CEO, as his in-house mentor while also being the head of global hospitality and strategy. In-house mentor, so kind of like the movie, a little. Thank you. I love the, I love the reference. We're talking about the Robert De Niro and yeah. Halfway movie. Yeah. Here's the big, here's the wrinkle that's different. So Robert De Niro joined Anne Hathaway as the intern, oh. uh, and that's the name of the movie. And so he was the intern and he became the mentor. I, be, I came in as the mentor and became the intern. <laughs> and the what I, what I really mean by that is that I was supposed to come in as this knowledgeable sage, you know, twice the age of the average employee in the company. And what became clear is, you know, on my third day, I was like, wow, I am in a tech company and I have no background in tech. So while I was at times dispensing wisdom, 
often I was uh, looking for a little bit of wisdom around technology or Silicon Valley, things that I didn't have much experience with. So what I had to do that was really quite an exercise in sometimes humility was be open to being as curious as I was wise. And that's what, to me, defines a modern elder is the traditional elder of the past or somebody who just dispensed wisdom. But a modern elder is learning as much as their teacher. Mm, I love that. I feel that way at our company, at, at Real Wealth Network, because we have so many millennials. They are so brilliant. We learn so much from them, and, and hopefully they're learning from us as well. Oh, it's great. All right. So are you still with the company? I had four years of full-time work helping to steer the rocket ship with the three founders and leadership team. And now for two and a half years, actually more than two and a half, almost three years, I have been a strategic advisor to the company. So for example, tomorrow uh, I go over to Brian's house and spend an afternoon with him just to help him look at where things are and where it's going and as well as his own leadership growth. One of the things that a few people have mentioned sort of independently is like, wow, if Travis at Uber had had a modern by his side, he might still have his job because mm. one of the things that can happen in a relationship between an older person and a younger leader is that mutual mentorship that occurs where I'm learning something from Brian, he's learning something from me. It creates a reciprocity and a certain amount of humility for both of us. And often what happens for many uh, young business leaders, especially in the disruption era that we're in, is they think that disruption is the way you're supposed to be every day. And, and, and mm-hmm. you're supposed to have hubris, not humility. And, and I think one of the things that Travis at Uber found was that hubris can only go so far and ultimately, in many ways, led him to not having a job anymore. In Brian's case, I think that level of humility he had to go and seek out people who were more knowledgeable or smarter than him on a subject you know, meant he ended up showing up on my doorstep around the subject of hospitality and leadership. And but what ended up happening more than anything was, you know, we both had to be humble. And I think humility is an undervalued part of the business world, especially in, in the valley. Oh, yeah. Isn't that the truth? But yeah, I agree. It allows you to open your mind and see where you can improve. Yeah. So speaking of which, Airbnb has had to fight so many battles for such a beautiful concept, such an opportunity for people to become real estate investors. I mean, that's really what our show Mm -hmm. is about. Actually, Rich and I kind of were doing the Airbnb model 20 years ago when we first got married. We bought a very large house that we really couldn't afford. It was six bedrooms, but we were able to buy it. And we basically, I mean, we rented through Craigslist, not the safest way, but We would have at least two rooms rented at all times, and that helped pay off our mortgage for us. And oftentimes we would bring in people that we really liked, you know, maybe it was a single mom and her kid would play with our kid or whatever. So we were doing the model. It's such a beautiful model, such a great way for people to build wealth and a great way for tourists to meet locals. And you're running into so many roadblocks. I mean, we just met with some people from Sweden who bought a home in Madrid. And they're not able to Airbnb it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, there's all kinds of reasons for this. but <laughs> And I'm definitely, I've been in the belly of the beast during the, the core of that time when regulations came around. I think, you know, the, there's two sides to this, too. One is Airbnb created a new idea, which was urban home sharing that was technology enabled. And in so doing, 
the company, in essence, didn't even know, the founders didn't even know there were a bunch of regulations, or in some cases, no regulations, um, mm-hmm. the wild, wild west that needed to be considered. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, uh, when I joined uh, Airbnb, I said, listen, we need to pay occupancy tax because we're a hospitality company, and occupancy tax is what hotels pay, and our hosts need to pay, and we need to figure out a way to do that. And secondly, we need to get to a place where regulations are going to legitimize the idea of home sharing. But, you know, be careful what you wish for. Uh, there's a famous Gandhi quote from the 1930s talking about India versus uh, the British. And he said, uh, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, then you win. And that uh, arc of ridicule, uh, ignore, ridicule, fight, win has been something that Airbnb has had to do in many different markets going out and trying to create regulation and that is sensible. What's been interesting is that sometimes there's regulation that's created, but there's not enforcement, and then the regulation doesn't seem like it's working well, and so then stronger and more stringent regulation gets put in place. And I would say that we're at a stage, frankly, in this marketplace that it's become maybe too hard for many people to actually be in the Airbnb business or in the home-sharing business. And I think that's too bad because I I do think there's a nice middle ground where it could work well. And there's some uh, metropolitan markets that have created very sensible regulations that work that still address the need for affordable housing. Because one of the challenges that did happen, Kathy, was that real estate investors would go in and buy an apartment building, let's say a four-unit apartment building, figure out how to potentially vacate the tenants. Now that's hard to do in markets like the Bay Area where there are tenant rights in place. But in many places, they're not. And so, you know, you could go and empty the building of people and then go from having people staying monthly and paying monthly to staying nightly. And that, if that's a writ large, can have a negative effect on a housing market. So, I mean, everybody recognized that and thought that there were some good compromises. And in some markets, we've gotten them. But in some markets, I think there's been an overreach by the government. What are the compromises that appear to be working? Hmm. It varies in the market. If you're in a vacation rental market, it's very clear that some kind of regulation around it has to be your primary home doesn't make any sense at all. If you don't live in Lake Tahoe, but you have a second home there and you want to rent out your second home, you should be able to rent out your second home. People have been doing that forever. So, But then you're in a market like San Diego or Seattle or even San Francisco to some degree where it is a vacation rental market and sometimes people are not there full time. Then you start getting into some of the gray areas. But I think where it works best is I was not a big fan of having people register, as, but if, it, if the registration process is simple and affordable and online, then I actually think it's not a bad way. And I think it's, Airbnb is being more and more open to saying that's an important piece of it because the process of registration, in essence, legitimizes you at the city and it makes sure the city feels like they're getting paid their taxes, et cetera. Where I think it overreaches way too much is, and, and actually having a limit on the number of days a year, depending on the market, can make sense in a market where a city wants to preserve its affordable housing. But I think another way that some cities have done it that actually has worked pretty well is to say, you know, as a host, you can't have more than five units available on any of these sites. Now, that would never work in San Francisco or New York. It just is way too lenient. But in some markets, you know, where there's not a housing crisis, it's actually a perfectly satisfactory way to handle it um, because it allows investors, especially in some uh, residential markets where there's some dodgy neighborhoods and some, you know, some residential spaces that are not too far from popular places where people stay. Uh, you know, it's a way to actually upgrade a neighborhood. 
Since you are a part of Singularity University, and boy, are they forward-thinking. It's such an incredible organization. Let's fast forward 10 years from now. Where do you see the housing market, short-term and long-term? That's a big question, I realize. Well, but <laughs> yeah, I, and I, it, of course, it varies in lots of places. Um, I, I was about three weeks ago in, the, in London. So I was mentor for Brian and now mentor for a guy named Reza Merchant, who's based in London. This company is called The Collective. I think I've seen the future and I've actually stayed in the future. And mm. I've gotten actually got to stay in the future. That's interesting. That's um, I stayed in a collective building. Mm. The Collective is a co-living company, um, a co-living developer. And so what they're doing is creating buildings that are actually sort of a hybrid. So the building I stayed in at Canary Wharf in London had 705 units in it, so it's a big building. But what's true about co-living is you tend to have a very small footprint for your room where you stay, and then you have a lot of social uh, spaces, um, and you have co-working spaces, you have co-cooking spaces, places. In essence, a lot of your life is lived outside of your room. What's interesting about this is that this building was one-third people staying three months or longer, one-third people staying one week to three months, and one-third people staying less than a week. So in essence, it was a combination of long-term tenants, extended stay guests from a week to three months, and hotel guests, all in one building, mm. all in a community. I think we're going to see more and more of that because it really solves for four things. Number one is affordable housing. In this case, is in some ways subsidized by the other two groups, the people who are staying shorter term, plus the smaller footprint of a guest room to stay in means someone can actually live in a place like London for relatively affordably. Secondly, more and more hotel guests are saying they want to live like a local, which is Airbnb's motto. And the idea that you could actually feel like you get to know locals. Well, if you're living in a building with people who actually are staying long-term, you're getting that opportunity. Thirdly, there's more and more digital nomads out there who are not just looking for a home away from home. They're looking for a home instead of home. They don't have a primary home. As long as they've got their laptop and a Wi-Fi connection, they can work anywhere in the world. And I meet these people all, all the time, and they love Airbnb, but in this case, they would love this place because it actually has a co-working facility right within the building. And then finally, there's a growing number of people who are talking about the, in a digital era, the growing amount of loneliness people have. Mm -hmm. And the loneliness is coming from the sense of people being dislocated or disconnected. Yeah. And when you have a community, almost like a vertical neighborhood in the form of a co-living building, it creates all kinds of new connections. So for all those reasons, I think that is the future of housing. Oh, my gosh, that's so exciting. I, I love it. We raised money for a startup with a, a, a similar concept, but it didn't quite have the right leadership. Leadership is everything. An idea is one thing. <laughs> Getting it to uh, come to fruition is a whole nother deal. So let's talk about that and, and kind of what you're doing now, which is really exciting. So my experience at Airbnb really led me to being called the modern elder at Airbnb, which was not something I was aspiring to. <laughs> oh, that was your name, the um, modern I, elder? I realize, yeah, <laughs> yes, it was. Um, and what I started realizing is that you know, in a world where power is moving younger people faster than ever before, and yet we're all going to live longer, there's an element of, couldn't we create a collaboration, uh, almost like an intergenerational collaboration across millennials and Gen Xers and boomers, there's actually five generations in the workplace for the first time. So that led me to writing a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, and then creating a, an academy on four acres of land an hour north of Cabo San Lucas in Baja, California, in Mexico, 
right on the beach, and it's called the Modern Elder Academy. And it's a place where people go in midlife to sort of reimagine themselves. Like, what is it that's next for me? Because if we're going to live longer and power is moving younger and the world is changing faster, all of that leads to a lot of bewilderment for people. So that's why I created the world's first midlife wisdom school. Mm, it's fantastic. That's We're doing something similar with a mentorship program. We, we uh, work with very seasoned developers because we are investing people's retirement funds and we want to make sure we've got the elder on board, right? The person who's been through many mm-hmm, recessions, mm-hmm. who knows how to how to maneuver through uh, different life's storms. But at the same time, you know, you need the creativity of the young people and the energy and, and motivation. So we started a mastermind where I could bring the elders and the young people to the table and we could do deals together. So yeah, we're doing something very similar. That's great. I love it. All right. Well, is there any last advice you would maybe give to old-fashioned real estate investors, people who buy homes and rent them out for the long term, nothing fancy, or, you know, good old-fashioned apartment owners? Do you see that changing in the future? No, I think that that's going to continue to have value. I do think the idea of making sure that people feel somehow connected to their community, you know, this is my hospitality hat I'm wearing, but what are you doing if you're having someone stay with you and rent with you for an extended period of time? How are you introducing them to the community? What are the things that you do to help them to understand all the interesting things to do in the area? It sounds like something you'd only do for somebody who might come for a short visit, but yeah, it's very welcome. If, if your landlord says, here's my favorite 10 restaurants in the area and why, yeah, that, that shows the level of friendliness that I think someone might be willing to say, yeah. I want to have that person, that man or woman as, as my landlord, because they just, they seem to care. Mm, yeah, I actually have had that experience. It really does make a difference. If people feel like it's their home and their neighborhood and they have roots, they're probably going to stay. Yep. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Great to connect with you, Kathy. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can listen to any past shows at realwealthshow.com. 